Hey everybody, Aaron from Der Shchai here. Uh, this last sat, this last Sunday, we had an awesome Shavuot gathering. It was a, a wonderful time of celebrating God uh, on His holy day that He has proclaimed for us to 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 keep in recognition of several events. And I gave a teaching. I, I lead a congregation in Greenville, South Carolina, called Grafted Together Fellowship. And I gave a teaching on Shavuot, and I was asked by a lot of people who were there to, uh, to, for the recording, and I realized that when we'd finished that I had not actually recorded it. And that was sad, because uh, I got a lot of positive feedback on, that, on this teaching. So I'm going to go ahead and record it again. And there is a PowerPoint presentation that goes with this. I'm going to upload that to graftedtogether.org as well as derishchai. Sorry, not derishchai, seeklifesc.com. And uh, that way you can go through the slideshow as I, as I give the teaching, if you like. You can download it from there and uh, follow along. So, Pentecost, what is it? It's uh, it's a feast that is that we're told about in Scripture, and uh, leading up to Pentecost, because Pentecost isn't the first feast of the season. Leading up to Pentecost, we have Passover. The Passover is a celebration of Israel being delivered from Egypt, coming out of the land. the The plague of the firstborn, the death angel passing through Egypt, and the blood on the doorposts. We're all familiar with the story, even if it's just from the movies. After that comes the Feast of First Fruits, one of the least known feasts, feast days that uh, occurs in, in the Bible. It's not actually ever given a name in Scripture. We're just told that on the day after the Sabbath, during the week of unleavened bread, that a omer of barley is to be brought before God and to be waved before Him, a, a, an omer of the first fruits or a sheaf of the first fruits. And so it's taken on that name of first fruits. Well, if you do the math, uh, it it appears as though after Israel left Egypt and crossed the red or left Egypt, they had to cross the Red Sea, and that Red Sea crossing occurs if you read the text three stops later. They go through three different places, and then they cross the Red Sea. Well, if we turn to the New Testament, we'll see that first fruits is also extremely important there as well. Then after first fruits, you're to count 50 days. 50 days later, you are to hold the feast of Shavuot. And if you look at scripture, it doesn't specifically say, but there is an event that occurred at Mount Sinai uh, just after Israel came out of Egypt. That uh, That is a celebration of the giving of the Torah. Well, if you turn to the New Testament, you'll see these same feasts represented there. The Passover we see represented through the crucifixion, when our Savior came and died and was the Passover lamb, and he delivered his people from bondage to sin and death. Three days later was the resurrection. That occurred on first fruits. And a lot of churches will call that Easter morning. In uh, Messianic congregations or in Jewish congregations, you'll hear it uh, called the Feast of Bikarim or first fruits. And then 50 days after that comes the Feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on, uh, on the people at, uh, at, in Acts 2. 
Well, this particular gathering was was absolutely amazing because it uh, it was a process that had been occurring for the past fifty days for our congregation. You see, when uh, fifty two days before this recording or before this teaching was originally given, we had had a Passover celebration for our congregation. And because Passover fell on Friday night, we decided to make an entire weekend of it. So we had a Passover, we had a Shabbat, and we had a first fruit celebration. And we rented out a campground and everybody came and we stayed in cabins, we stayed in rooms, and we spent the entire weekend together just celebrating God and His deliverance. We did a Passover Seder Friday night. We had an entire day of, of Shabbat the next day. And then the following day, we celebrated the resurrection of first fruits. After that, we cleaned up. We got everything together so that we could depart our separate ways and go home and everybody could return to their regularly scheduled programming the, the next day. Well, some of us didn't leave right away. A few of us stayed behind and we decided that we were going to go to Mount Sassafras. Well, we're in South Carolina, and Mount Sassafras is the tallest point in South Carolina. It's the highest mountain up near the northern border of South Carolina. And it was only three miles from the campground that we had spent the weekend at. So we figured, you know, we've come this far. We're this close. I'd never been to Sassafras myself. So we're going to take some time and go to Sassafras. So we went to, drove up the mountain and we got up there and we parked at the little parking lot they had. And as we got out of our car, a man from the DNR was there and he, uh, he told us, hey, you know, the park's not open just yet. There's a new tower that was built up here, a lookout tower, but it's not open just yet. So be very careful on it. Don't fall off. There's no insurance on it, but you're welcome to go up on it. So we went up, my wife, my children, and I, we, we walked up to the top and we looked out from the, the old lookout that was there. It wasn't, it's not really anything other than just a rock. That's the highest point on, on the mountain. And we stood there and we took it in for a while. Excuse me, I'm, uh, I'm drinking my coffee while I, while I do this. So uh, we took that in for a while and then we said, all right, let's go up to the, the lookout. Let's, let's take it in from up there because the lookout was an extra 75 feet high, higher than that tall point that we were on. And it uh, got you above the tree line so that you could see the view uh, much clearer without the interference or obstruction of all of the trees that were around. So we were walking up the ramp, and as I was walking up the ramp, I recognized the guy that I passed going up. He was coming down. And we passed each other, and at about the same time, we turned and faced each other. And I called out his name, he called out mine, and it was someone that I had been, I had done business for. Um, I used to own a computer repair business, and this was a, a gentleman that I had done business with before. Also a gentleman that I had, that we had rented a building on one of his properties for Pentecost, for Shavuot, two years previous. And we had had an amazing experience that time. And so we said, hey, you know, we hung out, we, we talked a little, caught up a little bit. And then we went our separate ways, and we continued on up the, uh, up the platform, and we got to the top, and we're taking in the view. And my wife had to return back to the car with my son for a moment, so she took off, and so my daughter and I are just standing there, just absorbing the beauty that was the, the hills and the lakes and the rivers seen from, 
seen from above the miles and miles and miles of, of just majesty and green that's visible from the top of uh, Mount Sassafras. And as we're standing there, we're, you know, we look down the path and there's a couple we don't know coming. And then I start hearing a little dog barking. Oh, I know that dog. That belongs to someone who was at, uh, at Passover with us. Someone named Chrissy. So she was coming. And my wife returns with my son and she says, oh, I saw Randall and Diane down there and I asked Randall to bring his guitar. Randall and Diane are from a band called Wilderness Cry, and uh, they had provided live music for us during during uh, Passover, and had been with us the entire weekend. So we, they were coming up as well, and those were the only people from our group that had celebrated Passover. It was my family, Chrissy, and Randall and Diane. So, as my wife had been coming back up, she'd seen Randall, and she stopped Randall and said, "Hey, bring your guitar. Bring your guitar up to the top of the mountain, and let's just sing some praise." So he brought his guitar and we walked back up to the top, they walked back up to the top of Sassafras and they started playing in a beautiful song in Spanish. I don't know like a Spanish, but the song was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, while it was playing, I just walked around and just absorbed the view and the music and the ambience and just everything. It was so peaceful, so beautiful, such a clear blue sky with light, white fluffy clouds in it. It was a perfect day for for celebrating the resurrection of our Messiah. When the song finished. The gentleman that was that had come up that I didn't know and his wife were standing there, and he he says, "Man, that was beautiful." And uh, Randall says, "Oh, do you know Spanish?" And he says, "Yes, I'm from Cuba. And I came to the United States when I was five. And uh, so we got to talking to him, got to know him. He was a believer in Jesus. He uh, is a church planter. He has he has planted." three churches. He's an evangelist. He's planted three churches in uh, the South Carolina upstate in the Greenville area, in uh, Marietta and Powdersville and Piedmont. And uh, so we got to know him and we were just hanging out and it, we could just feel the Holy Spirit moving. Uh, just an excitement was in the air, a, a thrill of this chance meeting of a fellow believer at the top of the mountain. And uh, we stopped and we contemplated and there were four congregations represented at the top of the mountain. Four congregations from the four points of the compass. Diane and Randall, they come from, they live in Georgia, but they celebrate many times in Flat Rock in North Carolina. Chrissy was from Clemson, which was due, uh, due west from where we were. My wife and I, we we don't live in Greenville, but we, we host our group in Greenville, which is mostly due south from the southeast from, from the mountain. And uh, Ray and his wife, the, the couple that were there, were they lived almost directly east from the mountain. And so we had north, Flat Rock, direct, uh, north of where we were, Clemson, west of where we were, Ray and his, his wife, east of where we were, and my family, south of where we were all coming together at this point unexpectedly for on the uh, first fruits afternoon. And uh, Ray and his wife were like, yeah, we didn't even know where we were going. We just hopped in the car and started, started driving. And the spirit would say, turn, and we'd turn. And we'd go, and we'd drive, and we'd drive, and the spirit would say, turn, and we'd turn. And we just ended up in this place that we'd never been before. Not a single one of us had been to Mount Sassafras before that day. And this new tower was right there, and in the center of it was this giant compass rose. And so we 
we took off our shoes because we just felt like this was a this was a important gathering, an important meeting. This this wasn't to be ignored. And we stood on the top of that tower. We faced towards Jerusalem, and we sang the wilderness cry version of the Shema. And we we all sang it. They handed out some lyric sheets, and we we just declared, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your right. That is the first command that was given to us by Yeshua, the greatest command. Well, we got done and we hung out. And we were just we were taking pictures and just hanging out on the mountain and just having a wonderful time. And uh, finally, one of the DNR guys comes up. There'd been a bunch of trucks coming and going uh, up the access road to the to the tower. And they've been doing a little bit of work down below. And uh, one of the guys comes up and says, hey, yes, sorry, you're going to have to leave. It's getting late. And we got to clean this place for the official opening tomorrow. So we're like, okay, no, yeah, yeah, no problem. No, cool. So we, we all get our shoes back on and we start walking back down. And uh, come to find out as we're walking down past the DNR guys, while we had been singing the Shema from the top of this newest high point in South Carolina, they had been hanging the dedication plaque for the, the tower that was there. And it was just such an awesome and surreal experience to to realize that we had sung God's praises at the the hanging of the dedication for this this high point. And for those of you who know, we've talked about it before on, in our podcast. the The high places are important places. They they were seen in the ancient mind as the place where God and man met where God and man came together. Uh, that's why the high places were built all throughout Israel, and that that other that the kings were told to tear down because they were building um, places of worship for other gods. And we had gotten the honor of dedicating that high place to the God of Israel. Well, as we're walking back down to our cars, I'm, I'm talking to Ray, and it just pops into my head, 50 days. And I knew exactly what, what that meant. And so I turned to Ray, and I was like, hey, what are you doing 50 days from now? He says, I don't know. You know who knows what they're doing 50 days from today? And I said, well, 50 days from today is Pentecost. And uh, we're going to have a gathering because we always have a gathering on, on Shavuot. And uh, we'd like for you and any of your people to come along. And he said, oh, wow, yeah, okay. That sounds like a wonderful idea. So he, uh, he agreed to appear at our, to come to our Pentecost gathering, which is fitting because he is a Pentecostal Christian. He's very, very spirit-led. So we split, went our separate ways. It was rather difficult um, in, the, in the moment to, to get back in the car and drive away from that place. But we returned home, and the next day I called up the place that uh, we had had two years before, the place whose owner I had, uh, I had just run into on the mountain, and I reserved the building once again, tentatively, for the day of Shavuot. And then started the waiting. I called back because I had to confirm this with a specific person. I, I would call back and she was on vacation. I called back, she was out sick. I called back, she was out of town for a, for a baseball game. I called back and something every time something came up and she was not there. I could not secure the building for the celebration. And the time just drug on, and the entire time I'm thinking, what am I going to teach on? I just 
don't know what it is I'm even going to teach on at Shavuot. I could pull out my teaching from last year, which was a really important teaching, something that I think that everyone should uh, should hear at some point. It was definitely something that was led by the Spirit and that was um, that was uh, something that the Spirit uh, helped me to put together and to to uh, yeah to create. During this time, I was also had reached out to Ray at least once and had heard no response from him. And I was hesitant to reach out to him and, and really start confirming things until we had a place. Because anybody who's done event planning, the place is the hardest thing, thing to, to secure. If you don't have the place, you don't have an event. If you have a place, you can do whatever. You can, you can just put out lawn chairs and, and you know, and <laughs> order McDonald's and you, you've got an event. So it was a long time of waiting, a long time of trial, a long time of, and it, this, it was a very difficult time for my wife and I. Uh, financially, we ran into a couple of difficulties, and it just, it seemed like there was a lot of, uh, a lot of trials going on. Well, finally, uh, I get an email from Diane from Wilderness Cry saying, hey, what are you guys doing on Shavuot? And I was like, well, I, I don't really know. I need to call, I need to call back the the location and see if I can confirm, see if I can get this confirmed for that. That that same day, I also received a uh, text from one of our group members who said, hey, what what day is today of the counting of the Omer? And for those who don't know, between uh, first fruits and Shavuot, there's a there's this thing called the counting of the Omer. As you count each of the fifty days, um, the tradition says that you bring an Omer of barley into the into the temple and you wave it before the Father, and it's called a counting of the Omer. So I was like, I don't know. I'm I've been I think it's the thirty third day, but I'm not really sure. And he says, Well, what's the significance of that? Well, come to find out, he was having something very significant. Actually, about two or three very significant things going on on that day. So I called up the location and the lady was there and we were able to get everything worked out and on the 33rd day of the Omer, 17 days until Pentecost, 17 days until Shavuot, everything fell into place. Uh, the building was paid for on the 33rd day the wilderness cry was scheduled to play for us once again on the 33rd day. I was finally able to get in touch with Ray and to confirm that he was coming, at least if no one else, on the 33rd day. And that night, as I went to work and was thinking about everything and what was going on, the outline for this lesson uh, came into my mind. Something that uh, seemed to be on, on God's heart. And so uh, all of this occurred on the 33rd day. Well, for those who don't know, the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer is a significant, um, significant event in, in Judaism. It's called Lag Be'omer. And if you do research on it on, in the internet, you'll find that Lag Be'omer, they connect it to a, a plague that was stopped for the students of Rabbi Akiva on the 33rd day of the Omer. If you do some more deeper research, you'll find that Rabbi Akiva was the rabbi that was supporting 
Bar Kokhba and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 135 AD, and that it was likely the plague that they were describing was the plague of the Roman soldiers who were fighting against this Jewish rebellion that was eventually defeated. But uh, there was a reprieve on the 33rd day of the Omer. But if you do a little more research and you dig a little deeper into Jewish history and Jewish uh, commentary, you will find that on the 33rd day of the Omer, it is thought, not proven, no one's got any proof, it's just part of their tradition, that on the 33rd day of the Omer, that manna was first given to Israel in the wilderness. It's a day of deliverance, it's a day of provision, a day of getting just what you need to continue on after being tried over and over again. Well, since that day to the day of Pentecost, the day of Shavuot, it was a, a, a flurry of activity, getting everything together. And everything just fell into place. It all just came into place in, in such a short time. And the reality was that it was guided. The entire event was guided by God. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, and the God of Yaakov. Now, if you didn't recognize those names, if you've been paying attention to Deresh Chai, you probably recognize those names. But uh, those are the Hebrew names of men. Not, not even Jewish men, but Hebrew men. Long before Judah ever existed. And their English names are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These men who were chosen by God to be the bearers of his covenant in history, they were very different, completely different from you and I. Everything that usually separates a culture separates us from them. And yet, their God is our God as well. He is the God of all people. And yet, in the church, what we find is that we tend to only interact with those people who are like us. And that's a problem. These men were from foreign lands. They had foreign languages, a foreign culture, foreign society. We have no way of relating to them in any way except through their God. And yet, when we interact in our own communities, we interact only with people who look like us, people who talk like us, people who think like us. And that's led to a problem in the body of Messiah. And the result of this is division. So our Pentecost celebration, or Shavuot celebration, we had two peoples represented there. And... Uh, this division that is represented in, in the room that was before us is one that's represented on a much larger scale throughout, throughout the world. In America alone, according to recent count, there are 41,000 Christian denominations. And how often do those denominations or people from those denominations worship with each other, talk to each other outside of work or neighborly connection interactions we have fights between denominations over minuscule bits of theology those 41,000 denominations all claim to be christian but it ranges everywhere from 14 different types of catholicism to mormonism to pentecostals to baptist to presbyterians to anglicans and everything in between 
Well, what we had before us on our Shavuot celebration was two people. We had two completely different people, two different styles of worship before the Father, and two primary focuses. Two congregations different from each other in, in nearly every way. One was a primarily Spanish-speaking congregation, Pentecostal, um, whose focus was on the, the Spirit. Their, their style of worship was, was uh, more rowdy, more loud. Um, the people from our congregation, we tend to be more subdued. We focus on the Word rather than on the Spirit. We, we worship very, very calmly. Two congregations, very different from each other in nearly every way. And yet, the purpose of our gathering was to recognize that we were one people of, of God. And that God that we were a people of, His original people that He chose, were vastly different. They were foreign people. They spoke a foreign tongue, and their style of worship was so foreign from either of ours. We were closer to each other in our differences than either one of us was to the ancient people of Israel. And it was our God that unifies all of us. Now, separation itself, separation isn't bad. Uh, in fact, separation is the definition of holiness, being set apart, being different, being uh, having a purpose that you are, you are set towards. Separation along the wrong, long, the wrong lines, however, it, it leads to fragmentation. Separation along correct lines leads to growth. We were two separate peoples, but our congregations were being split along improper lines, and that was causing fragmentation, those 41,000 denominations that, have, that exist in the United States alone. 41,000. Imagine that. One book of the Bible, 41,000 denominations. We have been split along improper lines for so very long. But separation isn't bad. And, and that leads us to a topic that uh, is something that I think is vitally important that we need to grasp and understand. In many circles and from many teachers, this, this topic is called duality. And I don't like the term duality. It's, a, it's got a new age ring to it. Um, it's got a Buddhist ring to it, this idea of the dual, duality of nature. I think that a better description for it as we see it represented for us in nature is one of polarity. It's a, it's a natural separation that has occurred in the world. And as we examine polarity, we will find something amazingly awesome that we don't see when we look at the world through a lens of duality. So from the very beginning, there was polarity. God built polarity into our our world, our existence, our universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, two poles of existence, one a plane of spirit, one a plane of physical. On day one of creation in Genesis 1, he separated light from dark. On day four, he then created the sun, the moon, and the stars to operate and to live in those places that he had separated. In day two, he separated the waters above from the waters below, and he created two poles. 
And then on day five, he filled those with birds and fish. On day three, he separated the land from the sea. And then on day six, he filled the land with man and beast, two kinds to live in the place between the poles. And then on day seven, he separated the Sabbath from all other days. God created polarity on these days, not duality, but polarity. And then in the polarity, because of the separation, we find that a place was created, a space was cleared for life to exist. Now, polarity itself, as we examine the world, as we examine the universe, it's a fundamental force of nature. Our whole world is based on polarity, not just our world, but our, our very existence. We've got the polarity of up from down. When you examine up and down, you have these two poles. But what exists in the center of up and down? Well, the observer, that would be you or I. You've got right from left. What exists in between right and left? Once again, the observer is there. Past and future. What exists in the between the past and the future, those two poles? There's the present. We've got cold separated from hot. What exists in the midst of cold and hot? Comfort, warmth. If you look at our planet, the cold places are barely, barely populated. The extremely hot places are barely populated. The temperate zones in between those, those extremes are the, have the highest populations of anywhere in the world. We see it in things like science and electricity. You have a positive charge and a negative charge. In magnetism, again, you have a positive charge and a negative charge. And even in our own biology, you have things like male and female coming together as one. Two poles that have to exist together. And in the middle of them, something occurs. Our existence is an existence of opposites. And that's what was represented in our room on Shavuot. One side of the room was the people who love the spirit above all else. Everything else comes second. And on the other side was the people who loved the word of God above all else. Everything else came separate. Two peoples, two congregations coming together. And that led us to Shavuot, to Pentecost. The reason that we were gathered on that day. Now, Shavuot is a, it's a translation of a Hebrew word. Shavuot meaning weeks. Put the ot ending on it and you have Shavuot. It simply is a plural of week, which means weeks. And it's called the Feast of Weeks. Shavuot, that's what that means. The first occurrence of Shavuot was over 3,400 years ago as we see it recorded in Scripture. Uh, it, uh, it, we, and we see this because we can track the feast days that we just discussed previously. Israel left Egypt on Passover. They crossed the Red Sea three, stop later, three th- stops later on first fruits in that first fruits event, being a, a passing through the water and resurrection into new life, into a new life of nationhood for Israel. They wandered through the wilderness, were attacked by Amalek, had a few water trials, they were got hungry, they had the quail brought to them, all in the course of 50 days while they were on their trip to Mount Sinai. And then on Shavuot, so many years ago, 
God himself, yod heh vav Hashem, descended from heaven, and he met Israel on the top of a mountain. And it was on that day that God and man were joined together in a covenant of marriage. If you read Genesis or Exodus, sorry, Exodus 19 through 24, and you look all throughout it, there are clues that Genesis 19 through 24 describe a marriage ceremony with the people accepting the contract of marriage that is being extended to them. In the ancient Near East, especially in Hebrew culture, marriage wasn't something that was done out of love. It was a contractual obligation. It was a joining together of two people for a purpose, and that purpose was then explained in a contract called a ketuvah. For those listening from Derash Chai, when we get to Exodus, we're going to get really deep into all of that and what it means and how we can live in that. But uh, this marriage covenant was a way of celebrating the coming together of God and man, of the God of creation, choosing mankind, choosing men from the earth to dwell among them. And that's what Shavuot is. That's what it's a celebration of, is this dwelling together of God and man. And on that day, a covenant was made, a covenant of marriage. It was made between God and man. And then that covenant is expounded throughout the rest of the, the, the Torah, the rest of the first five books of Moses. And that covenant is a, is a marriage covenant. And as we read through the Torah, we discover as that the covenant is the word of God. I need to make sure that we understand that. The word was spoken audibly to Israel on Mount Sinai. God got through just 10 commandments and the people said, no, stop, we cannot bear hearing your voice anymore. We're afraid we're going to die if we continue to hear your voice audibly like this because it's just so powerful, it's so real, it's, so, it's, it's ripping us apart. So you tell Moses, and you have Moses tell us the rest of what you expect of us. And so God told Moses, and he wrote it down for the people. And that covenant is what we read of in the rest of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, through parts of Numbers. There are some instructions given in there. And then in Deuteronomy, is a, Moses is recounting of that covenant in a, in a different term, a different way, um, which... Deresh Chai listeners, we'll get, we'll get to that when we get to Deuteronomy. But in, as we read through the covenant, as we skip forward into, um, into Leviticus, we read in there that God foresaw that the people would not remain true to the covenant. In fact, they demonstrated that very clearly in Exodus 34 when they built a golden calf. Sorry, Exodus 32. When they built the golden calf, and they, they built it to the God who had delivered them from Egypt. They built it to Hashem. Like, they gave it that name. This is Hashem, if you read, read that story, who brought you out of Egypt. But they built a golden calf to do that. They tried to worship in the way that they had learned in Egypt, rather than accepting the new way of worship that God had given them that was laid out in the Ten Commandments. Well, further on in Leviticus, as you read, this, this foretelling of you're going to go astray. You're going to leave this covenant. And when you do, there are some dire circumstances that are going to occur in your life. 
in the life of this nation. You're going to be exiled, and some really terrible, terrible things are going to happen. But the covenant itself, the covenant was forever. Israel didn't live up to the terms of the covenant that was given there. They broke both the word of the law as well as the spirit of the law. That covenant, though, that covenant was eternal. It had no end. And according to Deuteronomy and according to Matthew 5, that covenant that's written in the Torah will continue until heaven and earth pass away. In fact, if we look at Scripture, we'll see that heaven and earth are the very first things that we read about and the very last things we read about in Revelation are the passing away of heaven and earth. The entire scope of the human history from beginning to very end until new creation is ruled by the terms of this covenant. And that covenant contains stipulations for what happened to Israel when, and when they would disobey. But what's really awesome is that the covenant also foresaw that the people of God, Israel, they would confess their sins and that when they did so, he would return and he would bless them. He would take this covenant that had been broken and he would renew it for them. In Leviticus 26 verses 44 through 42, it says, But if they confess their crookednesses and the crookedness of their fathers and their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised heart is then humbled, and they accept the punishment of their crookedness, then they shall then I sorry that I shall remember my covenant with Yaakov Jacob, and also my covenant with Yitzhak Isaac, and also remember my covenant with Abraham, and remember the land. So there's a couple things that are in there that that have to occur. The people have to confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. They have to confess the ways in which they have trespassed against God Almighty. They have to confess the ways that they have walked contrary to God and then recognize that He has walked contrary to them because of it. If at that point, through confession, through repentance, their uncircumcised heart is then humbled or circumcised, and they accept the punishment for their crookedness, then the covenant will be renewed, and God and man can once again join together. Those are some awesome words to contemplate, because that is the gospel. Confess your sins, repent of all that you have done, Accept the sacrifice of Yeshua, the punishment for your sins, and be saved. Return to God, and He will return to you. And that takes us to Pentecost. Pentecost is a Greek word, and it simply means 50. It's 50 days. Uh, and the day of Pentecost occurred 1,400 years later, after the events of Mount Sinai. Once again, God came to earth. However, this time, rather than flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder, he came to earth in the flesh of a man. Now, God in man form, he knew the terms of the covenant, and so he was able to stay true to the terms of the covenant. But what helped him to stay true to the terms of the covenant was the empowerment of the Spirit of God that was within him. 
and he was able to keep the covenant completely. On Passover, he delivered his people from spiritual Egypt through his sacrifice. He took upon himself and accepted the punishment that was declared in Leviticus 26. On first fruits, he rose from the dead and he demonstrated the reward, reward for those who attached themselves to that sacrifice. He became the first fruits of the resurrection on that day. God himself came to earth. He fulfilled the terms of that eternal marriage covenant and created a way for those who had left the relationship with him to return into relationship with him. All we have to do is we have to accept his sacrifice, that punishment. The means of doing this was declared from the beginning. Confess your sins, circumcise your heart, become humbled, and then accept that punishment for your sins. If we do that, he will be righteous and he will forgive our sins, and he will create the way to return to covenant. We cannot do it alone. The Old Testament has demonstrated that it's impossible to keep the covenant if you try to keep the covenant in the flesh, if you try to do it by simply walking out in rote memorization or in a mechanical way the terms of the covenant. It's, it's absolutely impossible. So after his resurrection for 40 days, God walked with man, Yeshua, in his glorified body, walked with man, and then he ascended up into heaven once again. Fifty days after the resurrection was the day of Shavuot. And this was a day that it wasn't just people happened to be in the city on the day of Pentecost, but that people were required, according to the letter of the law, to be in the city on the day of Pentecost. One of the last charges that Yeshua gave his people before ascending into heaven that we read at the end of Luke was stay in Jerusalem until I have empowered you with the Holy Spirit. He didn't want his people scattering and not being in the city for the day of Shavuot. He needed them there celebrating this event in the place where his name was known, the place that he had chosen for his name. And on that day, he sent his spirit to empower his people. Now, when we think of power, we usually think of the power that the disciples had over demons and spirits, the power that they had over health and tongues, and the power that they had and the authority that they had to speak life and to bring life into a world of death. But there is one power that was given by the Holy Spirit that is vital to being able to do the rest. One power that it gives that you must have. On Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, we read, And I shall sprinkle you clean with water, sprinkle you, and I shall sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all of your idols, I cleanse you. I shall give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So this is describing a day of Pentecost event. And I shall take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I shall give you a heart of flesh. Ah, it's describing the circumcision of the heart. And I shall put my spirit within you. Here comes Pentecost. 
and I shall cause you to, what does it say? Does it say heal the sick? It shall cause you to um, give sight to the blind, to cast out demons? No. It says, I shall cause you to walk in my laws, to guard my judgments, and you shall do them. This is the primary purpose of the Spirit of God, is that the Spirit empowers the people of God to be able to obey. It empowers this people of God to walk in His laws, to obey His judgments, and to do His will. Obedience is the love language of our Creator. Obedience itself that will not save us. It, it never did. Israel wasn't chosen because they were obedient. They were chosen by grace. But once they were chosen, and once they entered into a marriage contract saying, all that he has said we will do, then the way that you demonstrate that love and that faithfulness to the, to the covenant is through obedience. Obedience really is God's primary love language. Even in the New Testament, we read this in John 14, 15, Yeshua says that if you love me, you will guard my commands. Well, fantastic. I love Yeshua, so I'm going to guard the commands of Yeshua. What does Yeshua command? Well, he commands, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't hate, don't lust. You know, all of the things that we read in the New Testament. But we don't read him commanding things like, you know, don't eat pork or celebrate these certain holidays or... Um, various keep the sabbath or things like that right except what was the greatest command according to yeshua something we already talked about the greatest command according to yeshua was love god with all your heart all your soul and all your might in the hebrew that word might is meod and it just means your everythingness your resources all that makes you you your, not just your body, your finances, your home, your car, your, 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 uh, your 401k, everything. Love him with everything and be obedient to him with all of it. So Yeshua's command was to love him through obedience to him. His greatest command was to love God that was to love God with all that is in us, all that makes us, us. So how do we do that? Well, if we follow the trail of logic, we love God by obeying his commands. Even the things like Sabbath and dietary laws, those are ways of obedience. When you have the Spirit of God, they're not hard. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, is it empowers us to obey to obey in both the big things and the small things, the trivial things and the great things. Yeshua said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. And that's true. There's nothing inherent in pig meat that, that can defile a man. You might get sick from parasites and stuff, but it's not going to defile you spiritually. It's not going to lose your salvation. But if all you're looking for is salvation and fire insurance, are you really loving God? If you truly want to show God that you love him, you just operate in the way that he is asked. Is it so hard to give up bacon? Is it so hard to take a Saturdays off and not do anything? That's how we show God that we love him. We obey his commands. So Pentecost power. 
This is one of the questions I've gotten the most often is, so where is the power in the world today? The power in the world today is in our every word and deed as we work towards obedience. If we turn to the Old Testament, we turn to the story of Saul and David, we see a picture there of proper use of power and improper use of power. Saul, the first king of Israel, he gained power over the nation, but he didn't have obedience. And the nation of Israel suffered because of that. In 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than any sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is, an, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Does God delight in the death of his own son offered as a sacrifice? Wouldn't he simply rather prefer obedience? Now we as humans, we are incapable of obeying fully. We are sinful from our youth. We will transgress the covenant. And so we need that sacrifice. We need the sacrifice of Yeshua. But once we have that sacrifice, we, should we continue to sacrifice him over and over again and say, well, God will forgive me because of the sacrifice? Is not rebellion as the sin of divination, the presumption upon God for his sacrifice? Does he delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? Or does he simply delight in obeying him? If you obey his voice, if you obey his word, the sacrifice is only needed once. Think on that. Does God delight in the sacrifice of his son, or would he rather you simply obey? Do you want to be a king? If you want to be a king, you need to learn obedience. We have been given power if we were in Yeshua. If we are in Messiah, we have been given power. But do we use it correctly? Do we as a people, do we deserve more? If we fast forward to David, the man that God chose after his own heart. David was anointed with power. And what did he do? He used the very little bit that he was given. And he was obedient in it. And as he continued to be obedient, he was granted more power. He was obedient in facing down the giant. And he was gained, granted honor and authority in Saul's, uh, in Saul's kingdom. He remained true to Saul, even though Saul tried to kill him. And he started to gain power over other men. And as he gained power over other men, he began to form an army of people true to him. As he was obedient, he gained more and more power. That initial anointing, that's where everyone is the moment they receive salvation. 
you have the Holy Spirit anointing you. Question is, are you going to be faithful with the little bit that you have? Because to whom little is given, little is expected. And those who are faithful in a little will be given more. We have to be faithful in that little bit that we are given. We have been empowered to obey God. But if we cannot obey God with the power he has already given us, do we deserve more? Are we going to be Saul who is going to be given power but then not have obedience? Remember, obedience is love. Or can we be David who is demonstrating obedience and love through the tiny bit of power that we have now before we're granted more power? You see, in, in David's story, he retained power over his people until he abused that power. The moment he abused that power, the enemy gained a foothold. Civil war and dissension descended upon him. And his power was taken away and it was challenged because of his disobedience. Obedience is so extremely vital do we want the power today do you want the power to heal the sick to then stay true to the power you have it's that simple god will give you more when you have demonstrated obedience in the littlest of things in that simple obedience of following his word keeping his command shavuot and pentecost they demonstrate for us a, a duality not a duality, sorry, that's the wrong word, a polarity, because the day celebrates two very different and yet so very similar events. Shavuot was a celebration of the physical, the people at the base of Mount Sinai, God coming down, a command given with an audible voice, a covenant made for the people to obey. In Pentecost, we, the experience was intangible, a wind and a tongues of flame over their head, the spirit given, something that can't really grasp a hold of. The covenant was renewed, and it included an inaudible voice of God. That voice then expressed through the people in the gift of tongues. The two poles, they seem to be separated in so many different ways, and yet they are connected and in that space between in that connection between is charge charge is the place between the two poles it's the place that exists in that space between the polarities see the poles of the polarity they're meaningless in and of themselves Okay, they do have some meaning. They have a place. They have a role. But if you join two similar poles together, what do you get? You get dead space. A positive and a positive charge in uh, electricity. They do nothing. They help nothing. Nothing happens. No, no electricity is created. In magnetism, you put a positive and a positive together, they repel each other, they push away from each other. It's impossible to join them. The role of the pole is unfulfilled 
without it being connected to its direct opposite. But when opposite poles, opposite polarities are joined together, something amazing occurs in the space between. When you have a positive and a negative pole of an electric circuit connected together, you get a flow of electricity that can power devices, can power cities. When you put the positive and a negative pole of a magnetic field together, you have a charge that can attract metal, that can move things around, that can run motors. When you connect the up and the down poles, that space between is you. Right and left, that space between is you. Past and future, that space between is now. Male and female, when you connect those poles together, you create life, human life. That space between the poles, that space between is a place of energy. It's a place of movement. It's a place of attraction. It's a place of struggle. It's a place of hardship. The poles themselves demonstrate a positive and a negative. Not that one is better than the other. Don't, don't take those in the positive, good, negative, bad connotation. They're just two ways of working against each other. And the God of the Bible, he is a God of life. And nature reveals that life only exists when energy is present. Life is created through tension. Life flourishes through struggle. But the enemy of God, he represents death. Death occurs when energy is removed or not present in the world. His goal is to twist our unity in such a way that the poles unify with themselves and prevent the space between from creating life. It creates stagnation. It creates stillness. This is something we see clearly in the LGBTQ agenda. They want to join the male pole and the male pole and prevent life. They want to join a positive with the positive pole and stagnate that potential energy. They want to take those positive poles as a magnetism and get them to repel each other. They want death. He wants death, the enemy of God. He wants stagnation. He wants no growth, corruption, absence of energy, absence of light. The goal of the enemy is to keep the people of God separate. separate. He wants to divide the word from the spirit. He wants the people of the word so divided from the people of the spirit that we're fighting each other rather than coming together. And we cannot allow that to continue because stagnation and fragmentation has been the only result that has come from that. And that only leads to death. And that brings us to unity. As a people of God, this is what we are called to. And we're given our example through our Messiah. Because our Messiah, he, wasn't, he was the Word made flesh. But he was more than just the Word made flesh. He was the Spirit of God made flesh. He was the unity of the Word of Mount Sinai and the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. He kept the Word in every way. And yet, He exercised the Spirit with all power and authority. And when we see the Word and the Spirit joined together in a single person, He became the ideal person. 
the obedient one. And the obedient one was also the powerful one. Our example of Yeshua, he shows us the same model that David did. When Yeshua was first baptized and the Spirit came down and it rested on him, what was the first thing that happened? He was led into the wilderness. He was tested. His obedience was tested. He was offered three things, three things that were not bad in themselves, but they were different than what God willed for him because God wanted him 40 days in the wilderness fasting. He was tested with bread. Bread in itself is not bad. It's something that we celebrate. It's something that we enjoy. It's a, it's a symbol of God's bounty in the earth. But when God tells you to fast, you don't then go and eat bread. It's against his command. He was offered the, the power over life and death, the temptation. You're at the highest point of the temple, as close to God as you can be. Throw yourself off and ask the angels to save you. Command the angels to save you. Saving your own life, that's not an evil thing. Tempting God and forcing God's hand, presuming upon God that he has to save you, that is an evil thing. And then he was offered his own role. He came to earth to be the king, the Messiah, the leader, the ruler, to be given authority. And what was it the adversary offered him? Authority. You can have authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth right now. You can take your power and exercise it. The power you were born to, the power you were created for, you could have it right now. All you have to do is bow to me instead. None of those things were wrong. Every single one of them was something that Yeshua had power to do, that he had the right to. But every single one of them was against the will of God. It was only after he successfully completed the temptation, after he successfully got through the wilderness, that he was able to exercise his power and authority. It wasn't before. This is our example. Yeshua, he was the Word. He knew the Scriptures. He walked in obedience. He was the Word of creation. When God spoke that very first words of creation, when He said, Let there be light, that was Yeshua. That Word proceeding from God's mouth. He was that Word congealed into a flesh form. John 1, 1 through 3 tells us that this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all came to be through Him. And without Him, not even one came to be that came to be. But He wasn't just the Word. He was also the Spirit. He had power and authority. He healed the sick and the lame. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and He raised the dead. In Acts 16.6, 6, we read that the Spirit of Jesus is the same Spirit that is in you. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit that was in Him, is the Holy Spirit. And in John 7.39, we read this, And He said to them concerning the Spirit, which those believing in Him were about to receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, 
because Yeshua was not yet glorified. The Spirit was not yet given because He was not yet glorified, because it was in Him. It couldn't be given because it was still operating in the flesh of Yeshua. Yeshua demonstrates the coming together. He demonstrates that true life requires both the Word and the Spirit to come together as one. One without the other is a man living alone. Sure, there's life, but you can't create any more life. You can't proceed beyond where you're at. One without the other is a positive charge of electricity without that negative. Sure, there's energy present, but it has nowhere to go. It's completely useless. It's all bottled up. Yeshua, he combined the two, the Word and the Spirit. And what was the result? What came from it? The result was life, the kingdom of God. You see, if there was only one word that you could use to describe the kingdom of God, what would that word be? Life. It's one of the reasons I... I engaged on this whole process with Deresh Chai, seeking life in all that I do. In the place that Yeshua brought together the Word and the Spirit, the kingdom of God was manifested in, the, in our presence. The seed of the kingdom was planted in the joining together of Word and Spirit in the flesh. And that, that is our place now. The place of the body of Messiah, it has to be a place without stagnation, corruption, or death. It must be a place of obedience to the Word and the power of the Spirit. We have to have both. For my part and in our, my congregation, we focus on the Word and we give it so much credence. And that is not a bad thing. We love the Spirit, but we don't understand it. We're very cerebral type people. We just don't get the Spirit so much. But we love the Word, and we want to know the Spirit, because we recognize that without it, it's impossible. On the other side are people who love the Spirit of God, who can hear His Word and follow Him down streets, and, and end up in places that... that they never would have thought to go in there of themselves, to be in places to help people at times when no one else is available. And yet, many times the word, proper understanding of the word, is missing from those congregations. Just as the proper understanding of the Spirit is missing from the people who know the word. We have to bring those together. We have to be both because life eternal, the kingdom of God, is found in that place. And that kingdom is the promise and it's the hope of each and every one of us. And to reach that properly, we have to live as he lived. And so that brings us to today. Today being Shavuot and Pentecost. So let's take an accounting. What is today? What is this day? Well, it's a day of celebration. It's a celebration of the Word of God given to man. But it's also a celebration of the Spirit of God given to man. It's a celebration of heaven and earth joining together in one kingdom. 
with one God, one King, one Master, one Lord. But it's not just 50 days from first fruits. It's never called just 50 days in the scriptures. When we're given an accounting of how to arrive at what day should be Shavuot, we're not told any specific day of the year. We're told seven days times seven weeks plus one. The fullness of God, the fullness of creation, the fullness of divinity. Seven multiplied by seven. Add one. That's infinity times infinity plus one in our modern parlance. And this day, in both examples that were given in Scripture, both at Mount Sinai and at Pentecost, there was a mixed multitude fit in there. And that's where we fit in. Because this day was commanded to Israel to celebrate in Leviticus 23, and this day was recorded as a day of celebration in Acts 2. In both of those cases, a polarity of people were brought together and brought into the kingdom of God. Everyone there served the same God, but they came from a multitude of backgrounds. At Mount Sinai, there was a mixed multitude. There were people from all nations, Egyptians, Canaanites. Uh, we know of at least one, Caleb, the spy that represented the tribe of Judah. He was a Kenizzite. A Kenizzite was an inhabitant of the land of Judah, or sorry, of the land of Canaan. And this foreigner represented the tribe of Judah. This foreigner came back as the honest spy that said, we can do this. This foreigner was rewarded with his own mountain known as Hebron. This mountain that then became King David's capital for seven years when he ruled over just Judah. He got the place where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelt. All three of them lived in Hebron at one point or another. And on the day of Pentecost, people came from all nations, all tongues, and were all gathered together in Jerusalem. On both days, all peoples from whatever background they had were joined together in the kingdom of God. Why? Because they all served one God. They didn't allow their differences to get in the way, to separate them. They came together in word and spirit to worship the God of Israel. And that's what we had on, that, on Shavuot, was a mixed multitude. People from many nations joined together as believers. We had people from Cuba and Puerto Rico, people from New York and L.A. We had people from New Hampshire and South Carolina, people from all over the world, at least all over the, the Western Hemisphere, were represented in our congregation. We represented people from many nations joined together in one place, a place that God chose to worship Him. Two peoples, two poles, the Spirit on one side, the Word on the other. And today, they came together. When we came, we were separate people. But as the day ended, we became one. Today, we worked to live out the kingdom of God in this earth. And doing that requires joining together those poles. The people of the Spirit 
must meet the people of the Word. And the people of the Word must meet the people of the Spirit. We all serve one God. We all serve one Master. The kingdom requires that we come together and do not be divided anymore along improper lines. There is a place for division along proper lines, but the people of God cannot exercise that, cannot, um, the people of God cannot separate. And today there is a charge. I myself, I've become determined to live out what Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where he says, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing among you except Yeshua, the Messiah, and him crucified. We cannot allow our differences to separate us. We must know what unites us as one people, and we must stay true to that. It is not going to be easy. There will be tension when we engage in this, but that tension will create energy. It will create movement, and that movement will lead to growth. And in the end, that growth will lead to life. Life found in the midst of two peoples joined together. And for Shavuot, we brought two peoples together, that life might be found in the midst of us. What will it look like to have light created in the midst of us? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I refuse to presume upon God as Saul did. He will create life in our midst or he won't. That's up to him. We simply must remain obedient to it. We must worship him in spirit and truth as one people, unified together. Our differences must foster that challenge towards new growth. And so that is the charge for the future. Not just for Shavuot, but for the future of anyone hearing this message. Find people who think differently, but who love the same God. Who have a passion for Him. And join together in community with them. Allow the tension of the difference of your beliefs to refine you. Allow it to grow you. To mold you and to make you into something more, to build you into a creature of life and not a creature of stagnation and death. This is the charge that I leave everyone with as we go forward. We've got to stop being separate. We've got to stop fragmenting along lines that mean nothing. We have to determine to know one thing, and that is our Messiah crucified for us. That's it. He demonstrated the joining together of the poles and the life that is the result of that. Now we get the opportunity to do the same.